So uh, you've got a handout, I hope, of uh, where you think we're, where we're going. There's a kind of synopsis at the beginning, which is basically the main point um, <laughs> that I'm making today. Everything else is kind of a filler. You read those two lines, you basically got the gist of it. Uh, but for the next hour, I'm going to keep saying things as well. Um, so let me start with, uh, I want you to imagine two churches. The first church is a church that talks all the time about relationships within the church, about how important it is in our church that we've got close, real, authentic relationships between us. A lot of emphasis on spending time together in one another's company, enjoying meals and doing things together. The small groups in this church tend to revolve around interests. So there's a, one of the small groups is a film small group or there's a cooking small group or whatever. And one of the things that this uh, church talks a lot about is the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. In other words, the way that we display to the world what the gospel does is this. This explains, this interprets, this gives you a view of what the gospel does, our life together, church one. Church two is a church that is all word, word, word. That's all, they're always going on about the Bible. Um, Somebody mocking this church slightly said, uh, they're never happy unless the Bible's open. When anything you go to, they have to open the Bible. Um, their small groups are hardcore Bible study. That's what they get together to do, to study the Bible, to really wrestle with it, to understand it and apply it, uh, because they say that's how Christians are going to grow. So I want you to think of that first church as a church that talks all the time about community, as that second church, a church that talks all the time about the word. Look down at the sheet in front of you, and I want you to mark your church with the cross somewhere on that line where you think you are. And by the way, I'm not for a moment suggesting the right answer is in the middle. Okay? So if you're trying to think, I wonder where I'm supposed to put the cross... <laughs> Don't ask that question, okay? I want you to just honestly put where you think your church is on that line. Okay, we all done? You'll need a pen. Because I want you to commit yourself to the bit of paper. So have you put a cross? I don't mean a, a virtual cross in your mind. I mean an actual mark on the piece of paper. Good, right, turn to your neighbour. If you're sitting next to somebody from the same church as you, get up and move and find somebody else. So I want you to go and find two people that you don't know who are in this room. And I want you to use this opportunity to introduce yourself to them and the situation that you come from, using where you've put the cross on the line to kind of describe your situation a bit, okay? So you need to get up, move around, find two other people in the room that you don't know. Okay, so we've got about an hour till uh, the next thing on the timetable. Um, we're going to try and finish somewhere between 3 and 3.15. We'll see how things go. Um, what I want to do for the next little while is I want to spend about half the time looking at the uh, book of Ephesians and about half the time thinking in terms of practicalities, and they're sort of mixed in um, with one another. Um, Ephesians is the Bible New Testament book that we, the church probably in the New Testament we know most about. Um, we got the story in Acts of how the gospel came to Ephesus. We know that Paul spent a good long time there. 
Uh, we've got the letter to the Ephesians. We've got 1 and 2 Timothy who were written to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We've got a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. So we've got lots of information about this particular church. And what I want us to do is to try and get a bit of an overview of what um, Ephesians is about and then try and apply that in terms of thinking about word and community. So please take your Bibles and uh, let's begin at the beginning of um, uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians. And what I want to do, first of all then, is just get a kind of glimpse of God's big picture plan. Um, I put at the bottom of uh, that first page a kind of diagram that uh, we're going to look at and dissect a little bit. Let's start, first of all, with that bit on the right-hand side and um, begin that by looking at the first verses of Ephesians that begin in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul is saying how fantastic it is, all the blessings that we've received as Christians. In fact, what he's saying is Christians have got it all. Every spiritual blessing you could possibly think up, you have it because God has given it to us in Christ. And then we get a great long list of what those are. He chose us, verse 4. Um, he predestined us. He adopted us, verse 5. Um, we've got redemption, verse 7, forgiveness of sins. Uh, and then in verses 9 and 10, one of the blessings that we're told that God has given to us is that he has, let's look down to verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. What is the mystery of his will? What is his plan, his purpose? Uh, what is the thing that he is doing? Verse 10, he has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That is God's will, his plan, his purpose. It was a mystery what God was doing, but now he's made it clear. Mystery in the Bible doesn't mean something mysterious, but it means something that was secret, and then now you understand it and you're clear what it is. And what we're being told here is that God has made the thing that was secret now clear. We now know what God is doing. He is bringing everything. His purpose for the end of time is to bring everything together under Jesus as head. Now, what we're being told here is that God has got a plan that was secret, but now he's made it clear. Now we've got it if we're Christians, and that is the plan to bring everything together under Jesus as head. Picture a plane, a great big um, valley with mountains either side, and imagine everybody who has ever lived brought into that plane and everything else brought into that plane. That is the picture that we're being given at the end of time, the Lord Jesus central, and everything brought together to acknowledge that he is Lord and King and ruler and in charge of everything. Everything brought together on that plane under him as head. Some people will be there willingly, joyfully. We'll be there thinking, yeah, we already knew that. Great. We love you, Jesus. We think you're wonderful. There are other people there who are there against their will and forced to acknowledge the headship of Jesus. But at the end of the time, of time, that is the plan. Everything brought together under Jesus' head, and that is God's purpose and plan and will. Then look on to chapter 2 in the second half of chapter 2. And this is one of those passages that is a kind of a but now passage. Remember what you were, and then verse 13, but now something different has happened. See, what we're being told is that God is working out that end time purpose and plan now. I can now, in this world, in this time scale, see people already brought together under Jesus as head, united in Christ. And what the second half of chapter 2 tells us is that it's Christians. 
We're all completely different types. We may be completely different from one another, racially, culturally, in terms of class or gender or political outlook, in terms of income bracket, in terms of accent, in terms of trendiness, in terms of edginess. There are loads of things that would act as walls to divide us, to separate, to keep us in different groupings. But what we've been told in chapter 2 is that when people become Christians, they are brought together under Jesus' head. That end-time vision of that great plane is now being worked out in the church as Christians are brought together, united in Christ, with every other division broken down between us. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that the mystery, the thing that was secret but now has been revealed, God's end-time plan, which is now being worked out in the church, that mystery is that Gentiles, people who would be complete outsiders, are now... And then uh, Paul makes up three words. They are now co-heirs, he says, sharing in the inheritance of God's heavenly riches. They're co-bodied, a made-up word meaning included in Christ's body, and co-sharers rather than strangers to the promise of eternal life. So the point that's being made is that in the gospel, Gentiles are co-everything with God's people, brought in. So chapter 2, verse 19, they are fellow citizens with the saints. God's end-time plan towards which everything is working, he is working out now in the church by bringing people together under Jesus' head, united under the headship of Jesus. And that is what chapter 3, verse 10 is about. Look down to that verse there, 3.10. Uh, let me pick up reading that in um, uh, perhaps verse 8. Uh, To me, though I am the least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone which is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 10. What verses 10 is saying is that as you look at the church, you get a glimpse there of God's plan as it's going to be at the end of time. What is God's plan at the end of time? Everything brought together under Christ. Look at the church, and there it is. People brought together under Christ as head. Now, the remarkable thing that verse 10 says is that that declaration is saying to who? (laughs) the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's making it clear to them, you will lose. It's saying to the most invincible leader in the world, whoever that might be at the moment, you will lose. It's saying to the evil forces that are manipulating things in this world. It's saying to the spiritual rulers uh, that Vaughan was mentioning this morning, it's saying to them, you too will lose. Because it is Jesus and not you who at the end of time is going to be head over everything. And the proof of that is, look in the church, you can see it now. As Christians gather together as the church, there is the proof of the victory of God. He's going to win ultimately. He's going to bring all things together under Jesus' head. He's already started to do it right now in the church. Just as he won the hearts of Christians. Third thing then to say. So, uh, the reality, 
chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, is that if God has brought us all Christians together under Jesus' head, what we now have to do is not create unity between us, but maintain the unity that God has already achieved. He has brought the two man together and made them one, is what Ephesians chapter 2 describes it. The two halves, he's brought us together. The unity exists in the gospel, at the cross. God has made us one. So therefore, what is our job? Chapter 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create the unity, we are to maintain the unity. And the way we do that is with the stuff of verse 2. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And all the rest of the practicalities of the letter from the beginning of chapter 4 onwards are really working that out. I think the whole of the letter of Ephesians is laying out this end time plan, showing how God is achieving that now in the church and saying, chapter 4 verse 3, you maintain it. And here is how, and all the rest of the letter is giving examples of how. So just take an example at random, chapter 4, verse 28. What does it mean to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit? 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Some of us may have had the experience in our churches of seeing a thief converted. This is what it looks like now working in order to share with those in need. A remarkable change. The gospel changes the thief around. So instead of taking for me, I earn to give to you. Because that is an example of how we work out the unity that God has created. The thief who would want to nick from the rich person now wants to share with the poor person. Uh, I think that's what chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 are working out as well. All that famous bit about marriage. That is talking about how to maintain the unity of the spirit between a Christian man and a Christian woman when they're married together. This is how that works out as well. And uh, that's why as you read that passage at the end of chapter 5, all the way through you're thinking, is he talking about husband and wife here or or about the church? And Paul says, yeah, that's right, I am. Because it's the same thing. Maintaining the unity of the spirit between the husband and wife within the church how it works out in the marriage is how it's got to work out within the church. That's our job. God has this plan. God's working it in the church. You maintain the unity that he has created. So that's, that's what my diagram is all about. Um, that's what I'm attempting to show in that. Let me then just give um, a couple of sort of uh, practicalities, uh, thinking through that how we maintain that unity and, and some of the ideas that there are in this passage. The first thing is that unity is obviously very important. Just look again at the beginning of chapter 4. Straight after Paul has said, maintain the unity of the Spirit, look what he then goes on to say in verse 4. And we've got seven ones coming straight after one another. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Every bit of the Godhead is described as one, spirit, Lord, Jesus, God, Father, each of those three. And look at the way that that is worked out in the gospel. There's one way of being saved, one entry point. We're made into one body. We have the same one future hope. The God who is one who has called us to oneness. Unity is very important. And those two things are totally linked together, the character of God and the character of the church. 
The character of God is one. The character of the church is one. Because God's big end-time plan is to bring everything together as one under Jesus' head, and he's working that now in the church by bringing us together as one. Now, I think when we talk about unity, what we're really talking about is what we often mean in church planting circles when we talk about community. It hadn't struck me till I prepared this how the word community has the word unity in it. You've probably spotted that ages ago. By community, we mean a group of Christians who are so together and intertwined in their lives that they are genuinely sharing, they are working together, they are concerned for one another's upbuilding and discipling and growth. We want to be working as an organism, a body together to produce maturity in one another. Yeah, that's unity in Ephesians. So I think that when we're saying unity is very important, as Paul does in Ephesians, I think that's just the same as what we say in church planting circles when we say community is very important. Look down to chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Isn't this a good definition of what we mean when we use that word community? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. Isn't that what we want our churches to be? Every, it working properly. And when it's working properly, the church growing up to maturity. That's a great thing. So community is very important. Unity is very important. It is very important because it is God's purpose and plan and will. <laughs> surprise, surprise. That's why we go on about it, because it wasn't our idea. God thought it up, and it's his plan for the end of time that he's working out now in the church. However, having said that, not all community is a good thing. People can come together for all kinds of reasons that feel the same as what we mean when we talk about community, where people are united for all kinds of reasons, but it's not necessarily a good thing. The unity we're talking about, the community we're talking about, must be achieved in the way that God has planned. The community we're talking about is where people are brought together under Jesus' head. It's not any old togetherness. It's where Jesus is head and we're brought together. So, um, where did I put that? I've got a little book I was just going to wave up in front of you, which I can't find. That book. If you can get hold of this book, this is a great little book, just a, a little pamphlet, Unity That Helps and Unity That Hinders. Uh, and basically, I can't kind of pracy this in shorthand without you getting totally confused, but I'm going to try anyway, so get totally confused for the next minute. Basically, what he's saying is there is a unity that God wants and is a good thing. That's what we're talking about today. There's a unity that God doesn't want and is a bad thing. Think of the Tower of Babel, people coming together to make a name for themselves. There is a disunity that is a bad thing and God does not work, want, where true Christians fall out with one another. There is a disunity, which is a good thing, and God does want, where we separate ourselves from those who are speaking falsehood uh, within the church. So it's worth thinking through what we're talking about when we're talking about community and unity. It must be achieved in the way that God wants it. And that, of course, is very countercultural because our culture says coming together on any grounds is a good thing. That's what the UN is based on, isn't it? Uh, read the chart of what the UN was set up to achieve. Coming together, we can solve the world's problems. I pray see, but that's basically what the UN Charter says it's there for. 
Uh, but we don't put any confidence in the UN, do we? We don't have confidence in Jesus. It's the coming together under him as head. That's where the world is going to come together. It's not going to come together in the UN. And in fact, the, the irony is, the very place where we try to get people together within the UN building and say, here is the great hope for humankind, everybody's sitting with earphones on and translators because they can't even understand each other. Ever since the Tower of Babel, our attempts at unity are pathetic. You can't even talk to each other without having somebody else to translate us, translate it. So community is very important. Not all community is a good thing. Third thing, just to underline what we said a moment ago, that we don't create community or unity. God does. The ecumenical movement in the traditional churches have got this completely wrong, haven't they? Weeks of prayer for Christian unity. We must get together and pray that we will be one because we are not one. It's completely misunderstanding the point that the unity already is created. Weeks of prayer to maintain Christian unity, that would be a good thing. But weeks of prayer to create Christian unity are a ridiculous idea. And of course, when you get the Anglicans and the Methodists talking together or whoever and saying, let's get together and form one denomination, what you end up is the two denominations become three. You've then got the Anglicans and the Methodists and the Anglibes, haven't you? I mean, that's... That's what always happens. Church history tells us that, doesn't it? All you do is proliferate more denominations and groups. And I suppose at a conference like this, it's worth making the point, isn't it? God creates unity. You are here with people you've never met before, and you're very happy to stand alongside them, singing, great is thy faithfulness, with tears running down your face. And you're happy to turn to somebody next to you. I don't know if any of you did this, but you should have done. At the end of that song, you're going to great big hug. Do you think, this is brilliant, you mean it, I mean it. I've never met you before, but God has created the unity with somebody I've never met. Bizarre, isn't it? I mean, extraordinary. When you think of how the world tries to create unity through committees, <laughs> we do it just by rejoicing in the gospel together. I was in Africa in October uh, for a while, and exactly the same thing happened. I met people I'd never met before, but there's unity in the gospel. You know, I guess if we... People in this conference, if we started talking about things like church structure or women in ministry or spiritual gifts or baptism, with lots we disagree about, but <laughs> we're united, one, we have genuine community uh, in the word of the gospel. That is the place of our unity. That's what the second half of Ephesians 2 says. And our role is to preserve it. And the fourth thing then to say is that uh, the church is the nearest thing we have to heaven on earth. And what I mean by that is if God's end-time plan is to bring everything together under Jesus' head, the place where we can see that end-time plan now is here. Christians gathering together. That is as near as we get to that. Now, of course, as I'm saying that, you're thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> heaven, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I'm sure there are very nice people in my row. Um, but my church, heaven? No, really, genuinely. Because God's end time plan is to bring everything together under Jesus' head. And he's done that in that little unimpressive group of people that you were with two days ago. Remarkable, isn't it? But that, that was a taste of heaven. I, we got all these funny ideas of what heaven are going to be like. You know, daisies and ice cream and skipping and whatever. Um, but actually... That experience of Christians together, united under Jesus in heaven, doesn't get better than that. You better get appreciating it because you're going to spend a long time doing that. So that's kind of introduction then to um, the first bit. 
Uh, let's move on then to look at a passage in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and my heading for this bit is that the word grows the church. And uh, I want us to see through this bit that uh, what we've got here through this are three bits of work. So this is chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. So it's straight after that bit where we're told that we may maintain, preserve the unity of the spirit. We get all those ones, one body, one spirit, one God, da, 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 da. Verse 7, difference within the church, because grace has been given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then we get three kind of blocks of material. The first one is the work of the ascended Jesus, which is in verses 7 to 11. Let me just read that a little bit. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he, Christ, ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he may fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now, it's a slightly kind of complicated passage. I want you to imagine some military battle. It's just over and the victors are returning home. And uh, they've plundered the enemy that they've defeated. And as they come back and all the kind of people are out on the streets to welcome the returning army, the victorious army, with all the plunder that they've nicked off the enemy, start handing out some of the plunder to the people who are waiting. They're giving gifts of their victory to everybody there. Now, that is a picture that comes from Psalm 68. And it's the bit that Paul is quoting here in Ephesians chapter 4. And that bit in Psalm uh, 68 was possibly written to celebrate the return of the ark to Jerusalem. But the picture is that God marches victoriously from Egypt to Jerusalem where he reigns over all. And on the way, he hands out gifts. And that is what the passage here is saying. That Jesus... When he ascended on high, when he was crowned as king at his coronation, he started handing out the booty, the plunder of his victory. And what he handed out was what? Verse 11. It's not Jesus giving people gifts. Do you see that? What Jesus gives are people it's not he gives some people the gift of being an apostle, some people the gift of prophecy, but what he gives are the apostles, the prophets, uh, the evangelists, the pastors and teacher. The ascended Jesus gives to his people the gift of people. And it's an extraordinary thought there. I have to say this to my church sometimes. Extraordinary thought. I am God's gift to you. Um, God has given me. The Lord Jesus, ascended Jesus, has given me to that church. Uh, it's his church. Uh, so this church building is not the church of the minister here. The real minister of the church is Jesus, who has given gifts to his church of these people. And everything that we do as church planters, as church leaders, as pastors, is under him. 
He is shepherding his flock. He is leading it. And the way that he does it is by giving gifts to his church. The congregation is his. The ministry is his. The leaders is his. The church is his. So that's the work of the ascended Jesus. Second thing, the work of the sum. Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, some translations put it, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So we're talking here about these people that Jesus gave to his church. In a moment in verse 12, we're going to talk about all. But there's a distinction in church life between the some and the all. And at the moment, we're talking about the some. Some of these some people have already been mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Or look down to chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, that God has revealed things to his apostles and his prophets. These foundational gifts that the church is built on their work. So the first gifts are the apostles and the prophets. I think those in the first century to whom God revealed his mystery. Not the apostles meaning the 12 and the prophets meaning not Old Testament prophets, but I think New Testament prophets within the New Testament church. So that's his first gift, the apostles and the prophets. Then that gospel that God has revealed was spread to others by evangelists, people like Paul, and also contemporary evangelists today, whether that's somebody with a famous name who evangelized you, or whether it is your mum and dad, as it was in my case, who were the evangelists who uh, explained the gospel to me. And then come pastors and teachers. And the original language here makes it clear that's one gift. It's not pastors and another group, teachers. It's one group, the pastors and teachers. Uh, we sometimes separate it, don't we? We say somebody's a good pastor but a lousy teacher. or The other way around, whatever I just said. What did I say? Whichever way I said it, the other way. Good teacher but a lousy pastor or good pastor but a lousy teacher. Um, whereas actually you can't separate them. Uh, you can't be a good shepherd, which is what the word pastor means, unless you feed sheep. You can't be a good pastor unless you teach um, so that is the ministry of the sum, the work of the sum. And then there is thirdly the work of the all, that chain of people from the first century to now. That is Jesus' gift to us today, that the word is passed on through the centuries to reach us. So that, what does it say? Second half of verse 12, or in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the work is accomplished. Jesus gives these people to his people, to the saints, in order that the ministry of the sum can produce the work of the all. See, that's what it says. Jesus gave, beginning of 11, these people, their job is to equip who? Every Christian, the saints, for the work of ministry. So the ministry of the sum is designed to promote the ministry of the all. So the pastor teacher is the servant of the servant or the, the, the minister of the ministers. Now 
Now, you'll notice then, let's just, just draw a few things out of that. You'll notice then that all of that we've been talking about here are word gifts. See, what all those four groups have got in common, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, they're all people who handle the word. They're all people who speak. They're all message-centered. Their function is to communicate a message. That's what they all do. That's what the apostles did. They heard it from Jesus and they passed it on. That's what the prophets do. You can't be a prophet without speaking words, can you? That's what an evangelist does. They've got to articulate the evangel, the gospel. That's the job. And the pastor teachers, they're the people who pastor people by teaching the word to them. All of those people have, are doing word gifts. It is word gifts that equip the church to build up the church, to grow the church to maturity. When I first went to an Anglican church where I used to work as vicar, and it was a church that wasn't evangelical and wasn't supportive to uh, the ministry that I was conducting there. Uh, I hadn't been there very long when somebody in the church came up to me uh, after one Sunday. Um, because I begin every sermon by saying to people, please turn in your Bibles to such and such a passage, which is what we're going to look at now. Um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, if we carry on using the Bibles like this every Sunday, they're going to wear out. <laughs> Word gifts equip the church. Uh, do you see that the pastor here is the trainer to equip the church? One of the things that I've tried to focus on in uh, my role now in, in the church plant that I'm pastor of is training the next generation. So I run a, a once-a-week course over the course of a year, 30 weeks long, called Equip. It gets its name from this verse. And the idea is to train up through those 30 weeks um, two hours a week, and there's homework to do in between and reading to do in between, to train up through that self-starter Christians. It's not a leadership training course. I'm not particularly aiming to produce leaders, but I am aiming to produce Christians who know what to do to be able to get on with ministry. So what I say to them right at the beginning is I hope that having done this course, Equip, if you were to leave Emmanuel, our church, and go to another church, you'd have enough idea about what a church should be getting on with. You can just pick up good tasks, good roles, good ministry with people without needing a job title, without needing to wait for the minister to come and give you a job, a role. You can just get on with, uh, with ministry. The, jo the job of the pastor to train and equip the congregation to do the work of ministry. I want our church to be full of disciple-making disciples, not just disciples. So one of the great things that's come from uh, Equip is that we've done it for four years now. Um, but things like women setting up uh, evangelistic Bible studies with groups of other women, um, a toddler group's begun, one-to-ones uh, just started up, uh, people doing uncover Bible studies uh, with other uh, people, friends, people fringe within the church and all of those examples have happened without permission or a job but people just equipped to get on and do at the work to equip the church to build up the church uh, somebody told me about a church in america where they'd been where the sunday notice sheet what would it be called bulletin in america that the survey the, the notices sheet uh, said on the back, Pastor Mr. X 
assistant pastor, Mr. Y, then there's director of, director of, director of, because it's American church, then ministers all the congregation. Now, that is right, isn't it? That is what this verse is saying. Who, are the, who is the minister of your church? All the saints. That is what this is saying. I used to live near a, a town centre church and used to have to drive past this church around a sort of one-way system, and the church was on a sort of big roundabout, really. Um, and as you came up to this church, there's a huge sign in the car park over one of the places saying church minister, you know, a huge reserved space for him to park his limo in or whatever it was he had. Now, that is completely the wrong application of verses 11 and 12, isn't it? Jesus has given some certain word gifts, not in order to exalt those people, not because some are more important than the all, but some minister or serve so that all may minister or serve. We want to equip the church to be building community, to be maintaining the unity of the Spirit. So we say in our church, who is it who does the pastoral loving care of one another in our church? We do, all of us. So if somebody comes and says, have you heard about so-and-so, they are going through a difficult time, dot, dot, dot. What can we do about it? My reply is, what can you do about it? And if you can't meet it, what can your small group that you're part of do about it? What can we do about it together? Not saying it's your job and not my job. <laughs> I'm far too important to be worrying about things like that. Not at all saying that, but it's our job. We share in the work of ministry together. So if I hear a practical need, could you meet it? Could your small group meet it? Um, and it's a wonderful thing when you hear that going on, isn't it? Who are the disciple makers in our church? We are. Everybody. All disciples are disciple makers. And it's such a thrill, isn't it, when you hear that somebody has taken the bull by the horns and is now meeting up with somebody one-to-one -to, -one to encourage them, or a prayer triplet has started up, or, some, or an accountability group, or somebody meeting up early for breakfast before. You think, brilliant, that is exactly what I want church to do. If you're a church leader, there's, if we're honest, a little tendency that says, they didn't ask. But for goodness sake, it's brilliant they didn't ask. They're doing it. That is exactly what we want to happen. We equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Who reaches out to our neighbors and friends? Oh, our church isn't growing. We need to be doing more evangelism. Meaning, when somebody says that, they always mean, you need to be doing more evangelism, don't they? And I say, who needs to be doing more evangelism? We do. Uh, the work of ministry is done by the congregation. All of these things, it is a one another thing. All of these ministries, they are one another thing. So word gifts equip the church to build up the church to the unity and the maturity. And that is the picture, isn't it, in verse 16. Every bit doing what it's meant to do. The whole thing is in working order. Everything works. The whole thing grows up. That's what we mean by community. And not surprisingly, a mature church looks like a one church, doesn't it? It all grows. It builds itself up. And it, the maturity of verse 13 is a unity expressed. That's what a mature church looks like. It's where community is a reality. Let's be clear where we've got to so far. How is that achieved? By the word. 
That's, what this, that's the whole argument of this passage, isn't it? The word builds the community. So the ministry of some, they are all word ministries, aren't they, in verse 11? And the saints are equipped by those words, word ministries. And a word is and a church that is growing and maturing, that is going to happen through verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Word. Now that phrase has entered sort of normal vocab in church. When say somebody says, I want to speak the truth in love to you, that usually means. I have become very aware of your faults and I'm going to slag you off to your face now <laughs> in love. <laughs> um, but the truth is, what this verse is talking about here, the truth in this verse is the truth, isn't it? It's not some little um, nugget I'm going to reveal about your foibles. It is the truth that we are speaking to one another. And when that body of Christian teaching and understanding, when the gospel, when that truth is being spoken to one another out of loving concern for one another, then that is going to lead to a grown-up church working properly. So the word grows the church. Let's take a break at that point. Uh, go back to the people that you were speaking to uh, just a moment earlier, and um, there's a couple of questions there for you to just think about together. Um, you might like to just first of all say, you know, the thing that's really struck me is da um, And then there's a couple of things you might like to just think about. So get up again and go back to the people you were speaking to earlier. And we'll just have a, a break for three or four minutes just to do that in our twos and threes. So we're just on the, the last page now of the handout uh, where it says word and community. Just uh, three things. Uh, first thing is that who does what, what God does and what we do. It's absolutely important, isn't it, absolutely crucial that we're clear uh, what is it that plants the church, not the church planter. Uh, because we think we do, and we put ourselves center stage. Uh, but it's the Lord Jesus who has given us to the church, so it comes from him, it's his initiative. I was very struck with that bit. W weren't you in that bit in Acts today? Um, about the, the, the call, of the vision of this man from Macedonia, and the way that Luke records the story in Acts. When Paul saw the vision, he immediately sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Really? You finally got it, have you? You know, you had a vision of a man saying, come. Do you know what? I think God might be calling us into Macedonia. God is the one who plants the churches and who shoves us out. He's given us to those people. Uh, that is our role to equip uh, the people of God uh, for that great work, uh, for those of us who are church leaders, church planters. God is the great church planter. And it's worth being clear, isn't it? What we do is spread the seed. We might water it as well, but God gives the growth. Um, second thing to say uh, is just to think a little bit about these two things of word and community and how they relate what about a situation which is all community without the word? And I want to say that's not a Christian community. Uh, I remember being in a church um, and being in a small group there where we were all, they were all people like us in our little small group. We were similar age, similar stage of life. We liked the same kind of things. 
We like dinner parties. You know, we like going to the theatre. We like that kind of highbrow, pseudo-intellectual conversation. And I remember the minister uh, in this church saying, the problem is when you get groups like that, you've got so much else in common, you don't need Christ. It's not Christ that's your unity. You built community, but without Jesus. That isn't Christian community. It's lovely. I'm not saying it's not a nice thing, but it's not Christian community unless we're brought together under Jesus' head. And he is the one who has created it. It is established and built upon his gospel word. So one of the ways that we seek to do that in our church is that our small groups, I guess many of you do a similar thing, our small groups meet to talk more about the previous Sunday's sermon in order to push application further. So we're trying to take the Bible teaching, the word is central, and apply it into one another's lives. To be honest, sometimes the groups are better at doing that than others. Um, it's all very well having these ideals. We know the reality of small groups. Uh, the preacher produces notes to help with that. And one of our kind of mantras as a church is we want to learn less but learn it deeper. And that's what we're seeking to do. So to keep the word building the community uh, in our church. Uh, what about the other way around, that uh, the word without the community, which is going back, I suppose, to my opening stereotype and the second example. I think I'm that stereotype. I think that would be me, word, word, word. Never talk about anything else. Uh, so you can now interpret everything you've heard according to the stereotype I've just given you of what I am. And yes, you may pigeonhole me, and now you've done that. Let's look at what the Bible says. But um, the thing is, that word does lead to community, to unity. Uh, what is it that we are built up to? We do need the word to grow our community life. In other words, it's not Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. Tick. But it's the word growing the kind of things that we've seen here in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, because God's purpose is a people, not individuals. Castaway Christianity is impossible. Uh, lots of Christians particularly in older denominations, like to have that kind of castaway Christianity mentality, don't they? Me on my own, on my own little island. Uh, God's purpose is to gather a people together. It's not possible to say, I want to be part of what God is doing, but I don't want to gather with other Christians. Can I be a Christian and not go to church? Yes, if I'm prevented by infirmity or illness, and in those cases, I hope the church would come to you. But apart from that, no, you can't be a Christian and not go to church. Because God's big plan and purpose is to bring all things together under Jesus' head, and he's done that now in the church. You can't say, I'm part of that, but I'm not part of that. Because the, th the that you're part of isn't the that that... See what I mean? Um, and this is very countercultural, isn't it? Uh, I recently read a book uh, called Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've seen an American thing that's, that's basically examining that age of individualism in the, in, in the States, and I think it's true in the UK and Europe too, the, the whole idea of I don't commit, I attend, I dabble, I put my toe in, but I don't commit. And in our age of consumerism, you shop around until you find the church that suits you, don't you? All of that is completely different from what this is talking about, isn't it? God bringing people together under Christ as head. So, um, I think I'm not going to say any more about those diagnostic questions. You might like to think about some of those um, on your way home in the car tomorrow or tonight when you're sitting drinking your Horlicks before you go to sleep or whatever. Um, 
and think about some of those. Just, just the first one is perhaps not quite clear. Um, do I believe in the church as the historic creeds say? And what I mean by that is, I don't know if those struck you, maybe you don't say the creed in your church. We don't say it in our church. We used to, though. Um, sorry, that isn't just a chest. We used to believe it, and we don't now. <laughs> That'd be a foolish thing to say. Um, just, we don't. Anyway, um, you know that phrase in, I believe in the church, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I don't know if it ever struck you. Why do you need to say you believe in the church? It's really the church is just this. Why is it a matter of faith? Well, the reason is because the church doesn't look like the thing that um, Ephesians is describing, is it? It doesn't look like the nearest thing to heaven on earth. So what we're saying is we believe that that is what God is doing here, and we believe in that great vision, and we believe in what he's done amongst us here. 